Bow your heads with me if you would, please. I hope tonight you feel a little bit more of a somberness to our time together. Sunday was exciting. Sunday was great. The palm branches are flowing. Everybody's cheering. Everybody's excited. The new Messiah, the Savior of Israel has come. crowds are gone. There's no one cheering. We're nearing midnight on Thursday night. We're closer to Jesus's crucifixion than we were last night. And he's about to be alone. And in essence, he's about to say, here's my life, Lord. I wonder in the quietness and the silentness of this moment, if you would be willing to say, here's my life, Lord. Speak what is true to me tonight. I'm open, I'm available. Here's my heart, Lord. Holy Spirit, as we prepare to open the word and to be able to continue our journey through Jesus' last 24, we pray that you will Fill this place. That there will be a holiness and a heaviness of your presence. And that we'll not miss what you want to speak to us tonight. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. As you're being seated, take your Bibles and turn to the 26th chapter of the book of Matthew. As you know, this week we're journeying through the... Last 24 hours of Jesus's earthly ministry of the time that he would come to an end of fulfilling what God's will was for his life. And last night we were in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples and we were there as he instituted a memorial. We were there as he gave us an opportunity to have something tactile, something that we could actually See something we could feel, something that we could taste that would remind us of the great sacrifice and how that he willingly of his own accord gave his body to be broken for us. And he gave his blood to be shed for us so that we truly could experience the forgiveness of our sins. And in John chapter 18 and verse one. John writes these words, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, so he's referencing the upper room, he's referencing that moment where Jesus said, here, this is my body that is broken for you. Here, this is the cup, this is the representation of my blood that is going to be spilled for you. The words that he spoke to his disciples about this memorial that he's now established, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden. In which he entered with his 
disciples. So if you take this passage of scripture in John chapter 18 and you piece it together with the journey that we took last night about Jesus being in the upper room, what you find is that during the Passover meal, Jesus pauses. He institutes a memorial for you and I to be able to participate in called the Lord's Supper. Then they sing a hymn and then they exit the upper room. They leave out of the upper room. They cross through the Kidron Valley. They go up onto the Mount of Olives and he and three of his closest friends in tow enter into the depths of the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane is located approximately one fifth of a mile from the temple. Now, in our mind, we have to remember the Temple Mount that we see in the news and the Temple Mount. That was the actual location of Herod's temple that was built in that location to where Jesus would have visited and would have been a part of his earthly ministry. And a fifth of the mile, fifth of the mile across the Kidron Valley is where that you would find the Garden of Gethsemane on the side slope of the Mount of Olives. Here's a picture to help us kind of visually understand what we're talking about. The picture on your left, that line that you see there, that is what is now the Temple Mount. So it's where that the temple that Jesus would have referenced would have been standing at this time. And we're looking up at the temple from the Kidron Valley. Now, if you look at the picture on your right, you'll see that now the, the view is from the Temple Mount looking down into the Kidron Valley. Now, what the Kidron Valley was in that geographical context is a wadi. And what a wadi is, it's a large ravine. And sometimes it has water in it during the heavy rain seasons. And sometimes it is very dry. What is significant? Is there any significance about the writers of the Gospels making sure that we understand that when Jesus left the upper room, he traveled through the Kidron Valley in order to get to the Garden of Gethsemane on the side of the Mount of Olives? Well, in the Old Testament, we find that during the period of the divided kingdom, after Solomon dies and Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they fight over who's going to be the next king, that we have a civil war that erupts and the northern kingdom becomes the kingdom of Israel, 10 tribes, and the southern kingdom of two tribes becomes Judah. And during this period of the divided kingdom, there's three specific instances where Jerusalem is cleansed, where where the shrines and the idols that have been erected to false gods, where they are actually taken outside of the city and they're destroyed. The first we find was during the reign of King Asa, who destroyed the idols and he had them burned in the Kidron Valley. In that wadi, it was during the dry season where there was no water present. He took all of the shrines. He took all of the false idols. He took all of those things that were drawing their attention away from the one true God. And in first Kings chapter 15, it tells us he had those burned. This would have taken place around 911 B.C. The second cleansing that we find is about 200 years later when King Hezekiah at the onset of his reign had the idols removed out of Jerusalem once again, and they carried them down to the Kidron Brook. Now we're in the rainy season. It's the same location. It just has water in it this time. It's not dry. It's during the rainy season. And according to Second Chronicles chapter 19, this is what took place. This would have been about 716 B.C. The third cleansing happened in the 18th year of King Josiah, about 20 years Prior to the Babylonian captivity, which would have happened in 597 B.C. 
And what we see taking place there is that Joash has Hilkiah, the high priest, remove all of the idols, take them down into the Kidron Valley. So now we're in the dry season. There's not any water in the bottom of the wadi. And he has all of the idols and all of the shrines ground up until they literally become dust mixed in with all of the dirt there in the Kidron Valley, according to Second Kings chapter 23. This would have been around 622 B.C. There's one other mention or one other reference to the Kidron Valley, and it's found in the Old Testament in Second Samuel chapter 15 and verse 23. That passage of scripture says, while all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. The king also passed over the brook Kidron. It was during the rainy season, same wadi. He passed over the brook Kidron and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. Now, the background of this passage of scripture is King David is the king of the unified Israel. And his son Absalom has led a revolt to usurp his father from being in power. David, not willing to wage war against his son, not willing to possibly have to kill his son. He leaves Jerusalem and he travels through the Kidron Valley. He travels up the side of the Mount of Olives and most likely into the area that we now look at known as the Garden of Gethsemane. It's during this flight from his son That we believe and understand that David penned the 41st Psalm. If you were to go to your Bibles and look at the heading of the 41st Psalm, it says the psalmist in sickness complains of enemies and false friends. Psalm 41 is very instrumental in Jesus's interaction with his disciples in the upper room. We know, as we've studied, that Jesus takes a towel and he girds himself and he washes his disciples' feet. And then he makes a proclamation that one of you is going to betray me. In John chapter 13 and verse 18, Jesus says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. This is a direct quote from David's Psalm 41, in which David is complaining about one of his close confidants, Ahithophel, his, his closest advisor who has stabbed him in the back and has joined forces with Absalom to overthrow his kingship. In Psalm 41, in verse 9, it says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. After stating this, it was in that moment that Jesus takes the bread and he dips it in the cup and he hands it to Judas and he says, go and do whatever you need to do. Judas flees the room. Jesus and his disciples partake of the institution of the memorial of the Lord's Supper. They have left out of the upper room. They have crossed through the Kidron Valley and they are now going up on the Mount of Olives, the same path. That King David took when he was betrayed by one of his close friends. I want you to hold on to that thought. I want you to hold on to that story. I'm going to come back to it in just a moment. Before I do that, I want to take us back to an event that I shared with you last night to tie all of this together. 
Last night, we talked about how that it had been estimated that by the time of Jesus's entrance into the upper room on Thursday evening, somewhere near 6 p.m., that as many as 250,000 lambs had been sacrificed on the altar on the Temple Mount. And if that is indeed the case, that means that it took somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 priests killing four lambs every minute for two solid hours For those lambs to have been sacrificed and to be able to be brought back to the people so that they could use them for the Passover meal that night. If that is indeed the case, you can imagine as this onslaught of lambs were being brought to the altar and as the priest would cut the jugular vein, somehow, some way, there would be a spurting of that blood out onto the altar. And in addition, while the priest drained that blood out of the lamb to give back to the people, there was a copious amount of blood that was present on the altar. No doubt there was A copious amount of water that was used to wash that blood off of the altar so that the altar would be ready for the next lamb that would have his throat slid and his blood drained to be given back to the family for them to use in the Passover meal. Copious amount of blood, copious amount of water, constantly washing off the altar as 250,000 lambs come across the old altar in a period of two hours to 600 priests as quickly as they can sacrifice the lamb for the Passover meal. What happened to that liquid? What happened to that water as it came across the altar and it mixed with the blood of the lamb that has been slain? Where did that liquid end up? Well, the word Kidron means black brook. Or gloomy brook. Perhaps it gets his name because... As the blood of the lambs that have now been sacrificed for some 1500 years since the institution of the Passover and since the sacrificial system has been taking place there on the Temple Mount, quite possibly Kidron, the black brook or the gloomy brook gets his name from the fact that as all of that water rushes off of the altar, mixed with the blood of the lambs that have been slain, as it runs down the slope of the wadi until it gets to the bottom, it is now turned that entire area a black, gloomy color. Don't you think about the complexity of that? Jesus is now walking through the Kidron Valley, heading to the Garden of Gethsemane. There is no doubt in my mind that he's fully aware of everything that I've just shared with you. He's fully aware that thousands of false gods and shrines that have been offered up to false gods where people have been confused that God, almighty God, the one true and living God could somehow be supplanted by some false God made in the image of an animal that God had created. Thousands of these shrines, thousands of these idols have been crushed up, have been turned into dust, have been dumped into this location. And now the Lamb of God is walking across that valley. There's no doubt in my mind that he's very cognizant of the facts, considering that he quotes directly from Psalm 41, that he realizes that he is on the same path that King David, after being stabbed in the back by one of his closest friends and confidant, took this same path and headed up the same mountain 
And now Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Psalm 41. I don't know this for certain, but I believe quite possibly as Jesus and his disciples made their way out of Jerusalem and down the slope of the Kidron Valley, quite possibly his foot slipped on the slightly coagulated blood that had been mixed with water and now run down the slopes. And as he slips and he places his hand down, he looks and now his hand is covered with that putrid smell of the blood that has been shed as a representation that God has forgiven Israel's sins. That stench, that smell, that history, that story, that betrayal, all of these things are weighing on Jesus' mind as he's leaving the upper room. And he's headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's Thursday night. It's close to midnight. It's been a week full of lasts for Jesus. His last visit to the temple, his last sermon, his last supper. And now with these three closest friends right there with him, he heads to his favorite prayer closet, to the place that he loved to go and spend time alone with his heavenly father. To offer up his last prayer. In this location. For Jesus. It's now crunch time. When I looked up the word crunch time in the American Heritage Idioms Dictionary, it said crunch time is defined as a period when pressure to succeed is great. It's often the end of an undertaking. The the term crunch used in this term, it's in the sense of a critical situation or a test. Jesus understands it's crunch time. Jesus understands that it is now a critical situation that he's facing. He, he now understands that he is at the end of an undertaking that started three, 33 and a half years earlier where he had come to this earth to do the will of his father. And I want you to remember something with me. We're not taking this journey through the last 24 hours of Jesus just so that we historically have more information. We're taking this journey to allow Jesus to provide for us an example of how that we can live like him when we face situations not as dire and not as difficult as what he faced. But when we face difficult situations, we'll know exactly how to act like Christ in those situations. So tonight's application that we're going to take from Crossing the Kidron Valley, traveling up the Mount of Olives into the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus Christ is if you commit yourself to being a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. If you commit yourself 100 percent to living countercultural in the society in which we live, you must understand tonight you will face your own Gethsemane. And in that moment. You'll have to determine what you're going to do with your crunch time. In our passage tonight, I want us to look at three principles that will help us succeed when we face our crunch time. 
The first principle that I see playing out in this event, this last 24 hours of Jesus where he travels to the Garden of Gethsemane, I see that to succeed at crunch time, I must embrace that God has a will for my life. To succeed, I must embrace God has a will for my life. Begin reading with me in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's gone deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane with these closest friends in tow. He went a little beyond them and he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Look down at verse 42. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Now look at verse 44. And he left them again and he went away and he prayed a third time saying the same thing once more. Jesus is now facing the most difficult situation that he has ever faced during his 33 and a half years here on this earth. And what was on his mind more than anything else was not so much the situation, but his desire to do the will of God that God has pronounced on his life. The will of God is not something that God the Father imposed upon God the Son. Instead, it is what God the Son chose to live his life by because he knew that God had a perfect will for his life and for him and only him to accomplish. He talked about it all through his Earthly ministry in John chapter four and verse thirty four, Jesus said to them, my food, what I live on, what gives me sustenance is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John five thirty, he says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. I have no rights. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He goes on in John 6 and 38, he says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who has sent me. You see, apart from the will of God, Jesus would have never entered into the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want you to understand tonight that people who have no concern for the will of God, they will not enter into their own Gethsemane. They will not do well at crunch time. The one thing that has brought Jesus to this grove full of olive trees on this darkest night in all of human history. He embraced that God had a will for his life. That's principle number one. The second principle that I see from here for us to be successful and for us to succeed at crunch time is this. Succeeding at crunch time does not mean I will not struggle with what God's will is for my life. To succeed at crunch time doesn't mean that there will not be a struggle that will war inside of me about whether or not I'm going to do God's will for my life. From the verses I've just read to you, Jesus clearly understands what God's will is. There's no doubt about that. He's very clear that's what God's will is. But as you also read through this, you can't help but notice that there is a cosmic proportion of a struggle that's going on inside of him. Listen to it again in Matthew 26 and verse 38. Then he said to them, my soul is grieved. 
How much is it grief? My soul is grieved to the point of death. You're talking about being stressed out. We talk about, oh, I'm so stressed out. When you're stressed out enough that you're about to physically die, that's the kind of stress that we're talking about right here. You have not understood or seen stress until you find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The stress is so great and the struggle is so real that a doctor by the name of Luke, he records what happened in the garden this way in Luke twenty-two forty-four. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Doctors describe this condition as hematidrosis. And here's the definition of hematidrosis. An extremely rare condition characterized by the sweating of blood. Which is said to occur when a person is facing death or other highly stressful events. It has been seen in prisoners before execution. This was not symbolic. This was what was happening because of the stress that was upon Jesus Christ of what he was about to face. And you must understand with me tonight, Jesus was not stressed out because he was about to die. Jesus came to this earth to die. He knew that's what he was going to face on this. He knew that was God's will. He was not sweating drops of blood because he was about to die. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, he very clearly says, don't fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. It wasn't death that had Jesus stressed out. He had come to this earth to do the Father's will and to die. It was the cup that was the stressor. Matthew 26 and verse 39 says, He went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. What was this cup? What's this stressor? What is this cup that Jesus did not want to drink from? The cup was not death. The cup was the wrath of God that was going to fall up on Jesus and the wrath of God that was going to be taken out on Jesus because Jesus was going to pay the punishment for the sins of all of humanity. Up until this point, Jesus, from this point and from all of eternity, had never known anything but a perfect, complete, total whole, intimate relationship with his heavenly father. And now he's facing not the love of God. The judgment of God, the wrath of God, the punishment of God, all for sins that he never committed. He had not committed one of the sins that was now going to be piled upon his shoulder. And now the heavenly father was going to release his wrath upon him. And this cup was a very stressful situation for Jesus. Here's the point. Even though it's always best to do the will of God. It's not always easy. To do the will of God. Even though it's best to do the will of God, it's not always easy 
to do the will of God. There's a cost to embracing God's will in your life. There's a price to be paid if we're going to do the will of God. And because of that, you know what happens inside of us is a struggle. I know what the will of God is, but I know what it's going to cost me to do the will of God. And this struggle begins to wage inside of us. But here's the good news. And here's what we want to pull out of this story tonight. Jesus knows all about that struggle. Jesus knows all about that struggle of wanting to do what God's will is for your life, but struggling to submit to what that will is in your life. So then we've got to ask ourselves, well, how do I, when I face that struggle, when it's my crunch time, when I find myself in my Gethsemane, how do I make sure that I'm prepared at crunch time to do the will of the Father and not my will? I would just simply suggest this. Make sure in private that you determine what your yeses will be and what your noes will be. Here's what I mean by that. Over and over again, we find Jesus pulling himself away to be alone with the father. And there's no doubt he knows what God's will is for his life. And in private, in conversation, in talking to his heavenly father, he determined in private before he ever faced it publicly. Here's what I will say yes to do. And here's what I will say no to do. Here are the things that I will give permission in my body to do. Here are the things I will not give permission for my body to do. Here's the things that I will let my mind concentrate on. And here's the things I will not let my mind concentrate on. Here's the things that I will do in the flesh. And here's the things I will not do in the flesh. And when we decide those things in private, when we get out into the public and we are facing those moments, it's not. As hard for us to make the right decision. It's not so hard for us to answer the call in the situation that is our crunch time. I believe the reason why this part of the garden scene is in the Bible. I believe it's to tell us it's okay to struggle with the will of God. It's not a sin to have that struggle. We're not we're not disappointing God, the father. Jesus had the struggle. The struggle is there. The struggle is real. But I believe it's also here because through Jesus example. He shows us the benefit of when we do follow God's will for our life. Principle number one is we have to embrace the fact that God has a will for our life. Principle number two is. We're going to struggle with that at times because it's hard and it costs us something. The third principle is to succeed at crunch time. It all boils down to this. To succeed, I must surrender to God's will for my life. It's one thing to know about his will and it's another thing to struggle with it. But ultimately, if we're truly going to succeed with what God's will is for our life, we have to surrender to it. And say yes. Remember on Sunday, for those of you that were with me, we talked about that entrance that Jesus had into Jerusalem and that great fanfare. And I read that passage to you from John chapter 11. Before Jesus goes into 
that great Palm Sunday, the event that preceded that was the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. You remember, he's having that conversation with Martha and he's talking to her and then he offers this prayer. It says, Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And then he says, of course, God, I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. As we study scripture, we see oftentimes Jesus prayed out loud so that other people would hear him. I don't advocate that. I don't advocate praying at someone, saying I'm praying and telling other people what they ought to be doing. Because we're sinners and our motives, oftentimes, they're not pure. But Jesus is pure. Jesus had no problem. He he had an intentionality by what he did. And and I believe that Jesus knew, though they were slumbering and in and out of sleep, I believe that Jesus knew that his three closest friends were hearing this prayer. But I also believe that he knew that you tonight would be hearing his prayer. He wanted us to hear his prayer of surrender to God's will. He, he wanted us to hear that when we find ourselves struggling with God's will and, and maybe we get to this point of even trying to negotiate with God just a little bit. Hey, God, let, let's change this will up just a little bit. I, I'm for your will, but can we negotiate this just a little bit? Then we need to step back and listen to Jesus's prayer. Verse 39, he went a little beyond them and he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Father, if there's another way that we can work this out. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42, he went away a second time praying, saying, my father. If this cannot pass away unless I drink it. Your will be done. Verse 44, and he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Let me reiterate what I shared just a few moments ago. It's not wrong to struggle with what God's will is. That's natural. But here's what we have to remember. Here's what we have to take from this. Here's what we have to extract. Defying God's will always costs more than you want to pay. We have to embrace that God has a will for our life. It's okay to struggle with that will, but we still need to surrender to that will because defying God's will always costs more than you want to pay. Let me explain. Jesus had the ability. Jesus had the prerogative. Jesus had Within his means, the okay to be able to say no to God's will that night. He was not a robot. He was not pre-programmed. He could have said no to the Father's will in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't want to drink this cup. I don't want to deal with this cup. No, God, I'm not going to do your will. He could have. But the cost of saying no to taking on the wrath of God, 
the cost of saying no to the crucifixion. The cost of saying no to taking away the sins of the world. Would have been the loss of the entire human race. To Satan that wants nothing more to kill and to destroy and to send every one of us to hell. That would have been the cost of the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That would have been the cost of him saying no to God's will for his life. You see, the benefits of surrendering to God's will was so much greater than just the approval of his heavenly father. The benefits was that a multitude of people, past, present, future, a multitude of people, including those of us that are here tonight, that are saved, the benefit was that we were offered salvation through Jesus Christ, not saying no, but saying, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. To succeed at crunch time, I must embrace God's will for my life. To succeed at crunch time doesn't mean... I'll not struggle with God's will for my life. To succeed at crunch time, I must surrender to God's will for my life. For those of you that come from a business background or you've studied business, you're very familiar with the cost-benefit analysis, a CBA. If you were to go to some business journal and you were to look up a CBA, you would look at the definition, it would say this. A cost-benefit analysis It involves comparing the total expected cost of each option. Option A, option B. The cost of option A is X. The cost of option B is X. It involves comparing the total expected cost of each option against the total expected benefits. A will cost, but here's the benefit. B will cost, but here's the benefit. The cost-benefit analysis then says which one of these is a greater benefit, and then the choice is made. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not as you've read through the Bible, but the entire Bible really is about a cost-benefit analysis. And that CBA takes place in two gardens. In the first garden, we find a man by the name of Adam. And when it's crunch time, when he performs his cost benefit analysis of surrendering to God's will for his life, he underestimates the cost of the benefit. He decided to seek his own rather than doing what he knew God's will was for him to do. And because of this gross misestimation of the cost of his decision... There's four things that we now experience as a result. Sin, sickness, sorrow, and death. Sin, sickness, sorrow, and death was the result of the misestimation of the cost-benefit analysis that Adam did in the Garden of Eden. As a result of that misestimation, the ultimate reason why there is cancer... Why there's murder, why there's divorce, why there's adultery, why there's homosexuality, why there's terrorism, why there is greed, why there is jealousy is because one man looked at God and said, not thy will, but my will be done. The second cost benefit analysis. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
is performed by a man by the name of Jesus. And he determined that the benefit of what you and I would receive by him doing the will of God in his life was greater than what it would cost him that night. And he says, not my will, but your will be done. Here's what I know is going on in this room. Is that we all are weighing cost-benefit analysis and things in our life. And if we don't use the will of God specifically and how it's laid out in Scripture and how that it is expressed in Scripture so clearly... Oftentimes what we do when we're doing this cost-benefit analysis of keeping our marriage together or throwing it in the trash can, having sex before marriage or staying chaste until I get married, conducting my business the way that God would have me conduct it or the way the world would have me conduct it, If we've not predetermined what we're going to do at crunch time. If we've not predetermined what it will cost us. If we overestimate the benefits of the decision. Then we don't usher in. Sin and and death. On a grand scale. But we usher it into our home. We usher it into the generations that come after us. Who are following our model. No, we don't we don't bring sin and sickness and sorrow and death to everyone. But we bring it into our relationships. We bring it into our life. We bring it into our home. Because at one point, there was a struggle that was weighing inside of us as to whether or not we would do God's will. And in that moment, in that crunch time, we're either like the first Adam and we say, not your will, but my will be done. That messes up a lot of people. Or we're like the second Adam, the perfect Adam. God's only son. And we say, it's not about my will, but about your will be done. Here's my heart, Lord. Come on. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Seek what is truth. Sing it again. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Speak 
what is truth? What's the truth that he's speaking tonight? You see, we're not coming just to learn history. We're coming to follow the example that our Lord and Savior gave to us. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me right now, if you will. And I'm going to ask Chris to come. And we're going to sing that song one more time. Remember, we're preparing our hearts for Easter. We're preparing our hearts for truly being able to celebrate the resurrection. And tonight you may need to come pray about a situation in your life. Tonight we may have been walking through this journey and you've realized that you've never submitted to God's will in your life for salvation. You're realizing that those words have just been a a song. But now there's a motto by which to live your life. And I want you to know you're in a safe environment, you're in a safe place. If you need to visit with someone, we'll take the Bible and we'll we'll show you things. If, If you just need to come pray, if you need to ask somebody to come pray with you before we leave here tonight... It's my prayer that all of us will be able to say, here's my life, Lord. When I say amen, let's stand to our feet. Could I just beg you, could I plead with you to just say yes to what God wants for you tonight? Father, we love you and we are cognizant of when we opened our time together tonight, we said, Holy Spirit, would you just be present and would you fall heavy on this place? And that's what we pray will continue so that each of us can know and do and operate in your perfect will for our life. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.